me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verse 24. If you are using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1016. We will look at the cross of Christ tonight, the crucifixion. I think this will be a profitable text for all of us, for the Christian. There's no greater ground for our sanctification than constantly looking at the cross and knowing what our sin did to the Savior. And for those who are lost tonight, I pray that as we look at the crucifixion of Christ, you will be transferred from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Let's look to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them and casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Here, the actual crucifixion of the Son of God is summed up by Mark in four words. And they crucified him. So we will ponder, we'll meditate on this, this, uh, these short words and our hearts will delve into what does it mean and we'll look at it under four headings if you're taking notes. You can write these uh, simple four questions down. It will guide us through the evening as we go. How did they crucify the Lord Jesus Christ? Why must the Lord Jesus Christ die this way? Why must such condemnation come onto Christ? And what does the crucifixion of Christ show? So how did they crucify the Lord Jesus? Why must the Lord Jesus die this way? Why must such condemnation come upon Christ? And what does the crucifixion of Christ show? Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you'll bless this reading of your word and our time in it as we meditate, as we muse on the works of God as revealed to us in your word. Father, we pray that we'll get a sense of uh, how great the central act in all of history was. That we will approach it reverently and with godly fear. Lord, as we survey the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, I pray that your Spirit will create the true reaction in our hearts. That our richest gain would be counted but loss, and that we will pour contempt on all of our pride. We ask that this will be so in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we want to start off just asking the question, how did the Lord Jesus Christ die? How did they crucify him? We should start off probably by just saying, at this point in time, Jesus is in excellent shape. The Even regardless of the 24 hours prior to the crucifixion, with all the physical and the mental anguish that was laid upon him, Jesus would have been in excellent shape. He had, for his whole life, eaten and drank to the glory of God. No addictions, no excess had ever marred his life. He had never forgotten that his body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each day it was joyful spiritual worship to present his body as a spiritual sacrifice, as a living sacrifice. He was by nature and by trade a carpenter. There would have been naturally physical exercise. His earthly ministry spent traveling, walking around the countryside. One a week he had a complete day of rest. All the benefits that that would have brought to him, to his body. 
His stamina, his strength were well developed. He was at the peak of manhood. And when he was nailed to the cross, he would have suffered greatly. He fought with death and he fought alone. Without the aid of doctors, without the aid of drugs, without the aid of friends to comfort him, assist him, he suffered. The tortures of the cross were meant to break a man who were in a good condition. So wipe any idea of your minds away of some effeminate Jesus, some weak man. It's not a weak man we're talking about that suffers here upon the cross. Crucifixion is uh, that means of putting someone to death. Sinners have scarcely invented a more cruel way of killing them, slowly killing a person. The English word excruciating is derived out of this word for, for crucifying. It's a terrible punishment. It was reserved for slaves. It was re- reserved for, for the likes of pirates and terrorists, those who would rob people on the highways. Not Roman citizens. They wouldn't be crucified. And the first readers of the gospel here would have known what it meant to be crucified. But we don't. We, we tend to forget whether it's because we have looked at lovely Rembrandt paintings, whether it's because we've seen Hollywood productions, we tend to forget what it meant that Jesus Christ was crucified. I pray like the great hymn says that we will recover this idea that He would devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. Because when we lose the sight of what it means that Christ was crucified, We lose sight, ultimately, of who we are. Who we are. And so, what does it mean? How did they crucify him? It was unnatural. His body would have been held there in an unnatural position for a long time. Torture is indescribable with words. The slightest movement would have caused great pain. His whole body, you can picture picture the uh, puncturing of his wrists and his feet, his back made raw from the scourging. Nailed particularly in those sensitive places. Some nerves excited, some others oppressed. Severest pain was caused to him. His irritated body parts gradually as it's exposed to the open air, swelling. Liquids in the body are are now being held back because of some of the swelling, causing great tension in the body. There's an the inflammation was just continuously growing. Blood was not able to flow freely through his body, causing it to rush more so to the head. Press hard, hard on the arteries there. The growing headache must have been ever increasing. Blood, the lack of blood flow was causing the, the cut off the free circulation of blood in the lungs. It was caused the heart itself to be oppressed and, and, and the pressure, the unspeakable amount of oppression was the result. Kathleen Schreiner writes about Jesus's time on the cross and particularly his breathing. Normally to breathe, the diaphragm moves down 
enlarges the chest cavity. The air fills the lungs. To exhale, the diaphragm rises up, forcing the air out of the lungs. And Jesus hung on the cross. The weight of his body would have pulled his diaphragm and the air moved into his lungs and remained there, making it hard to exhale. Jesus had to push up on the nails of his feet to exhale, causing more pain. And his words would have to cross up. The air would pass over his vocal cords during this exaltation. And he spoke seven times from the cross. And despite of all this pain, isn't it amazing? He pushes up to say, forgive them in Luke 23, 34. This difficulty surrounding the ex- exaltation of Christ. It was a, the crucifixion is a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood. The high levels of it, the body responds to it instinctively. The desire to breathe. You would try to breathe more. But at the same time, the heart beats faster, trying to circulate what oxygen is in there. But the decreased oxygen, because he couldn't exhale properly, causes damage to the tissues. The capillaries begin to to produce a, a... watery fluid into the blood and the tissues. And this results in fluid around the heart and around the lungs. Collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, inability to get sufficient oxygen to tissues essentially suffocated the victim. Decreased oxygen damaged the heart itself, led to cardiac arrest, sometimes cardiac Stress. The heart could burst. Martin Lloyd-Jones would talk, uh, preaching on a, on passage in John, says this is a scene when they pierced his side and blood and water flowed. And Martin Lloyd-Jones holds that Christ's heart literally bust upon the cross. He was a medical doctor. You can add to that the unnatural position in which he was hanging unable to adjust, unable to, to, to move. You can think of your muscles cramping how much you hate it in the night. Imagine your body cramping and unable to move. Stiffening nerves, arteries, muscles. The fiendish, annoying insects landing on the open wounds. Now, I've not told you these things to make you cry. This, this is information that was readily available and observable to the first century Christian. But we, we tend to forget. We tend to forget. We, we, we lose sight of that. But I hope it will help bring our affections to bear on the cost of your redemption. Your redemption was not a theological transaction. Your redemption was wrought out in time and space. There in Golgotha. What happened? Was Jesus thrown to the ground, laid out on the cross, nailed to it? Some think he might have stood on some type of trestle, and then they removed the trestle once the nails were in place. As they nailed him, his wrist, the, his his body would support the weight. His wrist would support the weight of his body. This picture the huge nail, nine to seven inches long, somewhere in there, being hammered in driven in through a major nerve into the hand, what pain it would cause. Using a sledgehammer to drive it firmly into the cross. The cross is lifted up. Jesus' full weight would, would pull down on the nails. His shoulders, his elbows would dislocate. His arms, 
would stretch to some six inches longer than normal, ordinary length. Each foot nailed to the platform. Luke 24, 39 tells us, when the risen Lord appeared to the disciples, He showed them His hands and His feet. His feet were also nailed, weren't they? The nails wouldn't rip through, the, through His ankles like it would uh, if it was nailed into His hands. So where exactly? We're not sure. But through His ankles, painful, causing acute pain. The crucifixion is a terrible punishment. And all these are just general ideas that we know from crucifixion in general. God has, in a way, thrown a a veil over the naked body of the Son. And we don't regret this. It's not our prerogative to move it. These are just general facts that we know about crucifixions in general. That this is what would occur to the body. This is what would happen when someone was crucified. So the cross is not some religious bookstore, sentimental figurine of the arms of love stretched out for the world. No, it's a place of suffering. And he was lifted on the cross and the ensuing torture was extreme. Extreme. Now there's some people to whom the sufferings of Christ is everything. And so they'll see movies, they'll see pictures, just trying to have some kind of emotions stirred within them. Trying to make it more real to them. But what do such feelings have to do with godliness? I can preach in such a way that makes you feel very sorry for Christ and and look on Him with great pity. But Christ does not want your pity. He doesn't want your pity. No. And what would you would be no more godlike for pitying Jesus. Now, if tears were the mark of a true Christian, all you would have to do is have a tender temperament and you'd be, a, be one of the greatest saints. But that is not the mark of a mature believer. The one who hates and battles his sins and looks to Jesus as the prophet, the priest, and the king, this is the one who becomes a mature Christian. So crime over visions of Christ hanging on the cross is no evidence that you're even a child of God. Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we see you hanging on the cross and weep for you? And the Lord will say, yes, and so did some of the Pharisees. And so did some of the soldiers who nailed me there. Depart from me, I never knew you. There were those who would walk to Golgotha and sniffled and blew their noses because they saw young men hanging on crosses. Such sadness didn't mean that they were Christ's disciples. Now it's not wrong to have a lump in our throat when we think of what Christ endured. It's not wrong, but it is not sufficient evidence in itself, is it? That God has changed our hearts. And without a new heart, we're still lost. Even if we do feel sorrow over watching or hearing about crucifixion of Christ. And without changed hearts, we are not fit for heaven. So they crucified Him in this way. Well, why must the Lord Jesus die this way? Have you ever asked this question? As we meditate upon the cross, why must the Lord Jesus die upon the cross? Why not some other form of punishment? Why not stab Him with a knife? In and out, quick, easy, He would be a dead man. 
They cut the throat of the lamb in the Old Testament. Why not cut Jesus' throat? Why not push him over a precipice like his enemies had tried to do earlier? They had cut the head off of John the Baptist. Why not cut Jesus' head off? Why none of those ways? Why was it God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge to crucify his own son? Well, scriptures give us a couple hints to this and directs us in this matter. For the salvation of all God's people, the Lord Jesus Christ needed to be lifted up and publicly exhibited before the world in his dying. He, he was not to die in a corner, in a dark alley, and his body be shuffled off and buried secretly. It would be nothing like that. He suffered under Pontius Pilate for bro- the broken law. He was legally judged by Roman law. And the penalty was crucifixion. The condemned man, guilty of attrition, uh, uh, just gross wickedness, had to be raised up above the ground so everyone could see that he was getting his just desserts. The wages of sin were crucifixion. Christ was legally judged not only by the Jewish law, but by Roman law, but by Jewish law. Jesus could not hang there on the cross and clear his conscience and say, oh, these are these Romans crucifying me here. No, the whole time he hangs there, the consciousness of the Word of God is hitting on Christ's heart. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Moses' book of the law couldn't be pushed aside simply because Rome was in charge. No. The Word of God was charging his conscience. In one hand, Rome holds the hammer. With the other hand, the Jews held the nail. And together, they condemned and crucified him, raising up But God was also there in that simple action. Not in the simple action, but He was there on that day. And He was also lifting up His Son before the world, placarding Him before men and before angels, exalting Him, drawing men to Him. And God is saying, Look to My Son hanging on a cross and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to Him. Look to Him now. Even us here in this room, we can look to that scene and hear it from God's Word and see a Savior. Not a figurine, not a good luck charm, not a decoration, but look and see a Savior. The words of the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what God was doing in raising His Son up. Another reason why Christ had to be crucified, must be crucified, and His condemnation had to be a violent death is because it had been foreshadowed in the Old Testament. In the sin offering where the Lamb was slaughtered, foul dust and blood all being mingled together as they gashed the throat of that lamb, his entrails being laid open and steaming its impurities in the sun, waiting to be consumed by a fire that was blazing away furiously in the altar, his ashes soon to be taken outside the camp. This was God's design. This is what he had laid out, the picture that he had given to be presented every day before the people, the sign of their guilt and how the great sin bearer would come one day and deal with their guilt. So Christ comes, he's whipped, he's beaten, 
He's hit again and again, and he is crucified. And when we, as a church, it, when, when the church of Christ remembers him, what do we do? When we think of even the Lord's Supper, we particularly remember his broken body and his shed blood. We remember these things until he comes. On the cross, Jesus experienced a curse. He experienced the wrath of God. Catastrophic curse. No doubt, the number of people in the room tonight, no doubt, some of you, I'm sure, have read the books by uh, Jenkins and LaHaye. And you read these things and you say, oh, wow, bowls of wrath being poured out. Look to the cross. Look to the cross and you see the reality of seven seals and seven trumpets and seven thunderings and steaming horses pulling a chariot of death. Look on the cross and you see Christ enduring the wrath of God. That's what you see at the cross. It's little wonder, isn't it, that the earth quaked and shook and dead were raised. Such things have been out of place if Jesus had just peacefully passed away in the night, surrounded by friends and family. Death and curse seized Christ violently. And that's why he was crucified. The full measure of guilt of a countless number of sinners was, ex- was not expediated in just a twinkling of an eye, was it? But the wrath of a righteous God against all of our sins was propitiated. And all that hellish, damna- hellish damnation, it took several hours. And the Son of God dealt with it. And he thoroughly dealt with it. Fully. And finally, and completely. Third question. Why must such condemnation come upon Christ? Why must such condemnation come upon Him? Well, the Bible gives us this answer too. It wasn't a case of hidden identity. It wasn't as though if the Romans and the Jews really knew who He was, then they wouldn't have crucified Him. They wouldn't have laid a finger on Him. No, His entire ministry is one clear, glorious revelation of God's holiness, His mercy, His love, His willingness to save. And why did they treat Him like this? Why does John 1 tell us that He came into His own and His own received Him not? Why? Herman Hoeksema probably has answered this better than any contemporary preacher. He says, there can be but one answer. They nailed him to a tree because of what he is. He is the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, God of God and light of lights. And this this Son of God, by whom also the worlds were made, came as near to us as possible. And when he assumed our flesh and appeared in the form of a man, he entered our world and walked alongside of us in the likenesses of sinful flesh, except sin, in all 33 years of his earthly sojourn, but especially during the three years of his public ministry, he revealed the Father. The words he spoke, the works he performed, yea, his entire person, always he stood for the cause of God's righteousness, of his glory, of his everlasting covenant. In the midst of, this, of, of a world of sin and darkness, he never drew back. With unfruitful works of darkness, he never compromised. Always he revealed himself in the light of in the light, and there was no darkness in him at all. In him God was manifested in the flesh. This is the deep reason why the world hated him. For men were and are by nature enemies of God. They love the darkness. 
and hate the light. Christ was the sinless one living among sinners, and so they hated him. He was the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness would have none of it. He was the Son of God, tabernacling among men, and man said, This is the Son, let us kill him. In the words of Psalm 2, they made war against the Lord and against his anointed. The other reason such condemnation as the cross came upon Jesus was their hatred of him uh, equal equal this, this prolonged torturing. They, they, they despised him. That's how much they despised him. A swift death would not have been good enough for him. They wanted his agony to be prolonged. They loathed everything about him. The way he, he exposed their ugly lives. The way he wasn't tolerant with them. They hated him. They killed him. As someone that was utterly worthless and evil, undeserving of a quick civilized death. So let's pause. Who were these people that would kill the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount? Who is it that would hate the great physician so much that they would see him crucified? Who were these people? Were they Catholics? No. Were they uh, human scum? No. Were they illiterate crooks and drug dealers and the worst persons you can think of? No. Unscrupulous criminals. No. The very opposite. They're the very opposite. These are the men who represented the world at its best. The men who nailed Jesus to the cross. Representatives of Roman law and power. Proud for their culture and their civilization. Their jurisprudence. Their knowledge. The other men who nailed the Messiah to the cross. The representatives of the greatest religion in the world. The great monotheistic religion. Recipients of God's law and God's oracles. Hearers of the prophets. Students of the scripture. These men ideas. That stand before God and be able to argue or plead that you lived a good life. Just as we sang, it's not what our hands have done. God will say to you, didn't you crucify my son? This is the greatest condemnation Against us. And when he says, Didn't you crucify my son? And I tell you, your sin is as serious as this, serious as Christ upon the cross. And that the only way God could forgive you is through the incarnation of the Son and his bearing the guilt on the cross. So the clutch of salvation. Who could devise it? Could the World Council of Religions gather together, come up with this great scheme? And plead with God, God, send your son to save us. No. no. No gurus, no bishops could ever dream such a thing up. The whole scheme was God's in its conception, in its accomplishment, in its consummation. He devised it all. The Lord. Salvation is from the Lord from beginning to end. It is from him and through him and to him. There's no place for human engineering and salvation. It's all divine. It's all of grace. It's mercy immense. It's free. And Christ was delivered up to Golgotha by the predeterminate plan and the foreknowledge of God. God provided a lamb. God found the lamb in his own flock, next to his own heart. And God sent the lamb. Jesus, whom he loved, became the lamb. And so God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the cross of Calvary.
He provided him there to bear his own wrath against sin that contradicts and defies all that God is as light and love and purity and truth. All that God is. God made Christ to be sin for us. The Savior contracted our blame. It was laid upon Him by God. And it was destroyed forever. The whole body of our sin, once and all, by Christ. The work He conceived of was completed. It is finished. That is what the love of God achieved in the cross. We believers don't get what we deserve. A God of love pursuing us. Finding us. Whether we're on the street corner, whether it's in bigs or eating ice cream, whether it's in school, sitting in a classroom, the God of love pursues and finds His own, doesn't He? Might be on a corner. Could be in the gutter and over the Rhine. Could be in this meeting house tonight. It's all of His grace. It's all of God's love. Utterly undeserving to sinners. How wonderful beyond measure. And the third thing that we see is Christ's salvation is this free gift. Christ's salvation is this free gift. How does the gospel address us? How does the gospel address you? Come on now. Let's squeeze a few more tears out of that stony heart and then I'll think about saving you. No, the gospel doesn't address us this way, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't say through cross-bearing and and pain of death, maybe God will save you? No. It doesn't ask us to fast, to agonize in prayer for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. No, it says, have you considered that Jesus Christ is God's Redeemer? Have you considered this? He's freed us sinners from the guilt and shame of our sins by paying every penny of our redemption. That's why He suffered. That we might not suffer. That's why he died. That we might not die. That's why he was forsaken. That we might not be. The great debt that we owe before God has been cleared. And there is nothing left to pay. Not a penny. God asks for no contribution at all. The only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin and your need. Nothing in our hands I bring bring simply to thy cross I claim. There's nothing, nothing whatsoever for you to do in regard to your salvation. It's God's free gift. By the stripes of Jesus we are healed and the pain which He endured for our salvation has secured it. He's not left one stripe for you to bear. Not one stripe. The hand goes up. Oh, but we must believe. We must believe. Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But the Savior is our bomb. The Savior is that thing that lays upon the redness of our sin and heals it. And faith is is that cloth that holds the ointment to the wound. The cloth is not what heals the wound. It's the ointment's job to heal the wound. And faith grabs that ointment and holds it to the wound of your sin and heals. Don't look at your faith and boast in your faith. It didn't die for you. Your faith didn't rise again for you. 
your faith didn't bear the wrath of God for you. All that was the work of Jesus Christ. And your faith takes that balm of Golgotha and applies it to your broken and your contrite heart. Another hand might come up. But we must repent. We must repent. Yes, of course, we must repent. Who would claim that the cost of redemption was covered by Christ and then hurry on to pursue a life of wickedness? Who could do such a thing? Once you turn aside to Jesus, your life is never the same again, and your whole life is a very life of constant repentance. Remember this, though. Your repentance is not the ointment that heals you. The blood of Christ is the ointment that heals you. Your repentance didn't hang on a cross. That was Christ. In fact, it's in the sight of Jesus' dying love for us. It turns us to His grace. Turns us to His grace. Calvary will deliver us from the love of our sin when nothing else can. And so at the beginning I said, the greatest spur for the Christian in sanctification is the cross of Christ. Gazing at it. That our sins have done that to the Savior should keep us from sin. This was the experience of John Newton. He wrote, In evil long I took delight, unawed, by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. This while his death my sins displays in all its blackest hue. Such the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. And that's the message of the cross of Christ. My, blue, my bleeding surety has borne my guilt. How can I possibly bear it again? How can I bear it? He's dealt with it all. The charge of God was, would bring against me has been dealt with by Christ and the law has nothing with left to charge me. Before the Lord God, I am now innocent. I am discharged from every threat, every obligation. I live because He died in my place. I am acceptable because the work of God was accepted. Jesus' dying on the cross was accepted by God. And so now I am accepted. You say, how do you know? How do you know that it was? How do you know God was accepted with that? Haven't many people in history been crucified? Yes. But God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that's how we know that God was accepted. You say, but Andy, I don't believe. I don't believe this. I don't believe that Jesus is dying in people's place or for sinners or that God had anything to do with this or that He was raised from the dead. Maybe so. You may not believe that. The Scriptures say it. I just leave this with you and with your conscience. 
even though you don't believe such things, do not stop them from being true. You may not believe such things, but it doesn't remove the fact that such things are true. I pray that we'll be like the hymn. And it will constantly be on upon our lips, the words of the great hymn. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. May that be known by all of our hearts tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word that has been given to us that we may know You and know ourselves. This inerrant, perfect Word. And not only that... We thank You for the Word of God that has come and died in our place. Oh, how Your glory shine brighter there in the cross than anywhere else. Oh, Your glory shines in all that are high and low, but nowhere like in the cross. It's concealed from them that do not believe, but all to those who believe, it's the most beautiful sight for us. And so, Father, we know of our own sinfulness. And in the cross of Christ, we find all of our hope and joy for this life and the one to come. I pray that you will continue to work in our hearts, even as we leave here. Lord, for any unbeliever, oh, may the meditation of the cross stir in their hearts. They will see what their sin has done. May they look to you as a friend and not their enemy by trusting in Christ. And for each believer, I pray that our faith will be garrisoned, that we will be made strong as the fight of faith is so hard. May we be made strong in this life and as we walk day to day by having our eyes firmly fixed upon the cross of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.